What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your Nuclear Barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I'm excited to bring to you a very different kind of episode. I mean, not totally different. I think it's adjacent to some of the stuff we've been doing with our Machine in the Garden reading with John Goodson, so go back and check that out if you haven't. But today we have the author, Matthew B. Crawford, joining us. How's it going, Matthew? It's going good. Thanks for uh, having me on the show, Emmett. No problem. I'm glad that uh, you could make some time. By the way, Matthew or Matt, what do you prefer? Matt's good. Okay, cool. So you are the author of Shop Class as Soulcraft, The World Outside Your Head, and Why We Drive, and you run the Arcadelia Substack. And I think we'll talk a little bit later on about what Arcadelia means. I believe that's your coinage. But I wanted to bring you on because you are somebody who has hands-on literal experience with machines while also having a very sophisticated appreciation and critique of certain elements of quote-unquote material or mechanical progress and the problems that creates for us today. And before we get into any of that, I wonder if you could sort of Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become the guy who ran a motorcycle repair shop and has also written these three books in the Substack? Yeah, well, all right. I don't know. It's always a question how far to back up. But since we're going to talk about things mechanical, I guess, I'll start with the fact I started working as an electrician's helper when I was 14. And ended up actually doing electrical work all through high school and college and eventually went into business doing that for myself illegally without a contractor's license. I also was into, you know, cars from an early age. So sort of parallel with the electrical work when I was 15, I started working at a independent Porsche shop, just, you know, doing pretty menial stuff. They teach me how to pack a wheel bearing once in a while. <laughs> and then got very into my own car, which was a 63 bug, VW bug. So yeah, I was sort of a high school gearhead hopping up this car with starts with 40 horse, ended up with like, you know, 70 horse, which is like. <laughs> You're just Tokyo drifting your VW bug around. Well, actually, the, the great thing about those old swing axle VWs with the rear engine is that you can get it sideways like nothing. So yeah, I was like driving sideways all the time, totally loving it. So, you know, you can be a hooligan with 70 horsepower in that VW. So let's see, studied physics at UC Santa Barbara. And then, you know, didn't, I didn't really have a, a my career, I was just, you know, doing electrical and stuff. Eventually got interested in philosophy. Actually, that happened towards the end of my time in college. There was a book that came out when I was a senior called The Closing of the American Mind that uh, you probably heard of. Yeah, that just blew me away and got me interested in sort of the history of philosophy in, in part because, so the author is Alan Bloom and mm -hmm. He's basically offering a genealogy of how we got to where we are. And when I'd look around 
you know, I grew up in Berkeley. Maybe that's pertinent. Mm -hmm. Wow. I would say that's definitely pertinent to somebody who in college stumbles on closing the American line and goes, oh, aha. Yeah. This is how I got here. Right. Because the, like the moralism was so thick growing up in Berkeley. It was just like dripping off every surface that kind of lefty progressive moralism. And Bloom is giving an account of how we got there. So it was really kind of liberating, I would say, to see the trajectory going back hundreds of years. Um, I've got there. Let's see. So I ended up going to graduate school for philosophy, essentially. Mm. I tried to get a, you know, professor job, as one does, a PhD. So I remember... <laughs> I don't know if they still do it this way, but I'd send out, you know, craft these applications very carefully, you know, your statement of purpose and all that, put together this whole package, you like presenting your mind and yourself for some professor job. And what you get back is a little postcard asking you to check some boxes indicating your sexual orientation, your race, you know, and that was about the extent <laughs> that was pretty demoralizing. Took a job in a think tank instead. Hated it. So that's when I quit to open the motorcycle pair shop. Go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, first of all, I am deeply sympathetic to you leaving think tank world. It is a very strange place to be in. And often it feels completely dislocated from the consequences of the ideas that it hoovers up money to promote. And you take this job at the motorcycle repair shop. And in reading some of your work, and also in reading how Stuart Brand, I don't know if you know this or not, but he's working on his book in public at Works in Progress. And your first book features very heavily in it. Um, yeah, it's called On Maintenance, or it's Maintenance of Everything, I think is the title. Um, one of the things that I really appreciate about your approach or the way that you started to think about the difference between handwork and mind work, which is in a way, as you indicate, a false dichotomy, is that you recognize that as compared to your life in think tank world, your life in the motorcycle shop is way more intellectually stimulating. So tell me about that a little bit. How, when did you start noticing that? And how did that start to inform? your outlook on the world. Yeah. Well, in the, the think tank, it was often a process of starting with conclusions, the ones that your funders favor, <laughs> and working backwards to find some suitable argument that can support the conclusion. So this, I mean, so what I'm saying is that it was inherently corrupt. If you yeah. go into it. Not honest right? investigation, right? Well, I mean, you can find arguments to support something, but the, the, that's, you know, the point is, you know, you're trying to, you know, manipulate policies at some level on behalf of various interests, whether they're material or ideological, you know, whereas in fixing motorcycles, either the bike starts and it runs right or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, there's no weaseling your way out of the fact or interpreting it away. So. I mean, that's just the obvious point that when you're dealing with material stuff, there, there is a, a reality that's fairly firm and 
fixed. And so, so that's refreshing. It, you know, if you're coming from a world where everything is kind of can be reinterpreted into one's favor, then that hardness of uh, fixing bikes was kind of refreshing. Yeah. So I would imagine that there's something more immediate about that experience. And because of the immediacy, I mean, there's, I think, just a more real phenomenology of investigation because of that. And the consequences matter in a direct way. Not just that the bike runs or it doesn't, but that it is safe for the person who asked you to repair it to ride it again. It matters for their life and it matters for your livelihood. It seems like something being at stake beyond the whims of donors really matters there. And also, you mentioned immediacy. So the consequences tend to be quite, uh, you know, in your face and they don't show up years later or someplace far away. Mm. They show up right here and you can hurt yourself or, or someone else can get hurt. So there's that as well. But you, you, I want to go back to your first point, which was about how working with your hands and with your minds is a kind of versus with your mind is a false dichotomy. And that's really the main thrust of that bookshop class at Slowcraft, namely to emphasize just how cognitively rich and demanding mechanical work can be. You know, most of that is in the diagnostic part, which is, in my experience, is most of what you're doing. Unless you're, yeah, I mean, obviously if you're just in some shop, you're changing tires or doing exhaust all day or something, it's not that, especially if you're working on, you know, newer stuff and the same stuff over and over, that could be very routine. But my shop, I was dealing with mostly vintage bikes and with no kind of limit. I mean, people would bring me everything so that every time I was learning my way around some new bike, mm. which makes the, it extremely inefficient time-wise, I mean, you can just eat up hours and hours, but it was never like routine. Um, and so I guess the broader point is that this distinction between knowledge work and manual work, I think is generally a false one. It is one, and it's a consequential one too, because, you know, parents don't want their kids to become mechanics because you know, they see that it's dirty and they sort of assume from that, that it's stupid. So. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think that there is, there's a bias against the trades yeah. that I think has only gained steam over the last few decades. I think I'm not going to pin it all on one guy. That's not fair. But I think to me, one of the people that I first think of when I think of that transition is Robert Reich and mm. his idea in the early 90s of the symbolic analyst as a new type in the service economy that was going to be America's future in the globalized world. And that service work and this sort of white collar symbolic analysis or whatever we want to call it, this managerial work as well, was the future. And not only that, the gateway to wealth, which meant, you know, sort of implicitly that anything where you're getting your hands greasy might be the gateway to poverty. 
and being left behind. But that's sort of true only if you make it true, especially historically when you look at it. I mean, also all of our wealth depends on people who get their hands dirty. You know, yeah. I mean, there, there's so many layers to this. The most maybe proximate for right now is that it's precisely symbolic the analysts who are getting threatened by AI, whether it's through automation, that is AI, or by outsourcing to different countries. I mean, so much of that knowledge work has turned out to be very vulnerable to their downward economic pressures. Whereas, you know, work that has to be done on site or in person is immune to some of that. You can't, you know, fix a leaking toilet over the internet. So that means whatever. Yeah. Someone has to show up. Someone has to be there. But you indicated earlier that there was a difference between the type of work you're doing. You're handling all of this uh, vintage equipment versus what someone might be doing at a newer repair shop. And some of that is taken up in a PC publishing compact first, and then it came out again on your Substack, which is the $5,600 taillight replacement problem, which has to do with overdesign. So tell me about these newfangled cars, and I assume motorcycles might be part of this as well, and what you see happening with the industries where it used to be that they encouraged a certain sort of immediacy and mastery over the machine. So yeah, that piece starts with the YouTube mechanic named Ford Tech Macaluco, which I pronounce it, but he's an independent Ford Tech and he, he <laughs> tells the story of this truck that came in. Well, he, there were electrical gremlins that were getting worse and infecting different systems. And, you know, he was trying to get the guy in for service. And finally the truck completely was dead with start. So he had it towed in, you know, he gets out to his scan tool and starts poking around and eventually traces the problem to the taillight. So what happened is. Moisture got into the taillight housing as it does, right? It, it's going to happen. Yeah. As the, as the Coast Guard says, water's always looking for a way into your boat. Yeah. Well, turns out water's looking for a way into literally everything. <laughs> yeah. So in a sane world, what, what happens then? Well, the, you know, maybe the contacts get corroded and, you know, uh, so this taillight stops working one way or another. So in the same world, you would put in a new bulb, maybe clean the contacts, maybe you have to put it a new, you know, holder socket, maybe the wiring leading up to that is also corroded. So you cut out a few inches of wire, splice it in, maybe you have to replace the gasket on the taillight lens. Maybe the lens itself is cracked. Okay. So you might be into it for a few hundred bucks, but in this case, what happened is, uh, well, the taillight housing also houses the uh, radar blind spot detector, which is in communication with every other system. So on a modern car, um, there's something called the CAN bus, which stands for control area network. So in a modern car, there might be as many as 70 different ECUs that's electronic control unit. 
controlling the different systems and they have to talk to one another. And so the, the CAN, the control area network is a protocol for doing that. And what it means is that if you get a kind of uh, a resistance that goes out of range on the tail light, simply because of corrosion, that propagates through all these systems. Um, you know, probably reads as ground faults, I'm guessing. And so eventually the entire trunk is dead and pinpointing the original cause of that, like you gotta be a stone cold genius. I don't care, you know, your scan tool only just kind of pointing you in the general direction. It just, it leaves a few breadcrumbs. Anyone who's, you know, used a scan tool knows that it's just the beginning of the diagnostic process. So in any case, yeah, $5,600. And most of that was not the diagnostic labor. It was parts confined to the taillight housing, if you can believe that. So, so <laughs> ah, that's amazing. <laughs> so, but yeah, the thing is, their junkyards are full of cars that are uh, good paint, good interior, mechanically sound. The only reason they've been scrapped is because they're underwater on repair costs due to electronic complexity. So, you know, if it's a $5,600 repair, well, it turns out the average American has less than $5,000 in savings to its name. So you might have to throw the truck away because of the taillight. Yeah, no, exactly. Most people can't afford that at all. These trucks pile up. I mean, to me, one of the things that felt really palpable in reading this piece and sort of connecting it to your other work is that there seems to be a few things sort of bumble, bundled into this $5,600 taillight. And one is sort of like an old problem, let's say, of industrial modernity, which is what should our relationship to machines even be? You know, how much do we rule them versus they rule us? Part of it has to do with a sort of over-design and over-complexity as a sort of stand-in for progress. Like people call it progress, but the downstream consequences aren't there. And then, and you've talked about this at length in a lot of your other work, is a sort of safetyism. There is an idea here that all, that devaluing the subject in relationship to the machine, that over-designing it uh, and all of these things are in service of making us all safer, when in reality, it might create worse consequences. Or, you know, on my old show, we used to say everything is dumber and more complicated than you think. So problems of that nature. And just to give an example from the nuclear industry, somebody told me the other day that they were talking to a guy who worked at a nuclear power plant, and he was complaining that the regulations are so over much, so burdensome that he had literally spent like two consecutive workdays with two other guys watching individual water drops fall into a can from a pipe because someone had to be there to watch it. Wow. It's, it's like, almost yeah, Chinese water torture. Then mindfulness practice. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Except, you know, like way less, I would say, useful than maybe Zen practice. But anyway, like 
I guess what sort of what I'm getting at is that it's very easy, I think, to fall into a sort of Pollyannaism about the reduction of material suffering through technological progress. But often there is a lack of weighing the quote unquote trade-offs for some of that. Some of these trade-offs aren't even necessary. Or I mean, maybe they are. Like, where do you stand on that? Is just this the are these things the consequences of a highly developed, technologically savvy world? Or are there other routes we can take that are more convivial to a sense of personal freedom and autonomy? Yeah. First, let me ask you, should I turn off that heater? Or is that going to be a problem that just kicked off? This is kind of easy. I didn't hear it at all. So you're fine. Okay. I guess we did. Yeah. So you mentioned safetyism. That's a big one. Also, convenience is another rationale by which these sort of features proliferate, adding to complexity, which in, ten, in turn increases the brittleness, you know, because all these systems communicate and therefore yeah, the propagation or combinatorial explosion of, of the systems that are themselves fairly simple. They interact. There's your problem. So in the case of you know, the, the Ford F-150 that we were talking about, it has, for example, trailer backup assist, whatever that might be. So the, the, you know, so learning to back up a trailer is, you know, it's hard and it's a skill. So de-skilling is kind of one of the, one of the umbrellas under which all of this proceeds, as well as safety is. And so I think a lot of this is dreamt up by board engineers who find that they can combine existing capabilities in various ways. You, you already have a set of sensors that do one thing instead of actuators that do something. And you, you know, for some purpose that's like legit and, and really necessary, but then you can combine them in new ways and create new features. So one example I use is the hill holds function, parking brake activated by a butt, which uses the tilt sensor that's also used by the burglar alarm. And then it's mm -hmm. tapped into, you know, anti-lock brake actuator. So here's a new function. So, you know, previously, if you had to get underway, well started, well stopped on a hill, you'd sort of feather the clutch and the throttle while holding the handbrake and slowly release it. But now you can relieve people of developing that skill, this feature or you know, blind spot assist, you no longer have to turn your head to check the blind spot. So if, if someone points out that this is like electronic bullshit that you don't need, what you're going to hear is that, well, yes. think of all those people whose necks are too stiff to turn around and check the blind spot. Think about Henry Rollins and how thick his neck is and how Henry Rollins <laughs> can't see behind him. So yeah, there's, like there's this kind of democratic moralism, you know, the disabled, or there's always some disability you can point to justify this. And, and then also a kind of misanthropic assumption that people are incompetent. And of course that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because as these things proliferate, it does lead to a de-skilling our skills atrophy from lack of use, which leads to calls for yet more further automation. So. If you go far enough down this road, what you end up with is like an assisted living facility kind of mentality. <laughs> that movie Wally, you know, I don't yeah, know, where you get these really fat 
like humanoid creatures who go around in these driverless car type things. And, you know, they're just gazing at their screens and drinking from their older slurpees or whatever. And they're completely safe and content and somehow less than human. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a kind of anti-humanism that is this invoked in this hand-wavy way to justify the, the additional expense that you just impose on everybody. Uh, that, that is somehow this humanitarian, well, it's both humanitarian and that we you now think of the least among us who can't back up a trailer. What are you, heartless? And at the same time, anti-human in the sense that it's assuming incompetence on the part of human beings. Right. And also competence on behalf of the people who would design and manage the system that caters to this alleged fragility. Mm. You know, that's something that you bring up in your, and by the way, people, this will all be in the show notes, your piece in American Affairs, where you talk about sort of the party state that we live in, which seems to be this cluster of NGOs, these civil society organizations that have a very strange relationship to the state as we've inherited it. And one of the ways in which they justify their own behavior works in a similar way, right? Like, oh, think of group X and how they're disadvantaged. Now we need to tailor everything on their behalf. And perhaps we even need to disenfranchise to a certain degree the majority of people to cater to minority X, even if this minority is like a basically invented category that popped up on Tumblr six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's the compassionate face worn by, you know, authoritarian faith, basically, that it, compassion is the justifying sort of morality for gathering power from people to a center, to an administrative apparatus that is going to you know, do things for us. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's something that I worry about a lot, right? Like, so I sort of mentioned before, you know, like to what extent are we just, here's a question I ask myself all the time, Matt, maybe you can help me out with it. Like, this is something that sort of keeps, keeps me up at night where I play this game where I'm like, I have a problem with thing X, right? Let's say the thing in this case is I have a problem with the way in which I think modern cars are too microchipped out, right? Like I can't imagine, this was very common when I was a teenager or just a little kid. Like my, I remember I had this friend whose older brother and his friends were putting together a car in their garage, right? Like that seemed to be like a common American suburban story. Right. The older brother who's a gearhead and all his buddies smoke parliaments, and put the car together in the garage. You know, like that was a common feature. And I don't know lucky strikes. Lucky. So, well, I'm thinking about who these guys were. Right. Maybe if they were cooler and edgier, man, they'd be on your level with lucky strikes. But that seems basically impossible now. And I'm like, I don't like that. But. Is that a bug or is it a feature of the society we've built, right? Like one of the things that bothers me with my own thinking sometimes is that I think I fall into sort of a plea 
for a Goldilocks scenario where I get all of the things that I want with none of the trade-offs. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I guess I'd say a few things. Probably going to forget the second two, but the one I'll start with is, yeah, as far as tinkering and hot rodding and stuff like that, on the one hand, it has been made more difficult with all the complexity. On the other hand, it's also kind of been shifted. So I actually think we are living through the second golden age of hot rodding. Oh, hell yeah. Tell me about that, dude. Yeah. Okay. So you, you want to hear about the, the good stuff. All right. Yeah. Give me that good shit, man. <laughs> okay. I'll lift you up from despair. So people are getting the crazy amounts of horsepower out of motors these days. Mm. And what's made that possible is electronic engine management. The uh-huh. reason, so that's all that means is that you have minute control over spark timing and air fuel ratio. So why would that matter? Well, it matters because with that control, you can now add huge amounts of boost for the turbocharger without detonating the motor. So in the past, I mean, people have been supercharging and and turbocharging for decades, many decades, but you had to run extremely rich to stay safe. That is on the air fuel ratio. You had to be very conservative on spark timing, but now, I mean, you have like you should see like a, a map. It's like a three-dimensional map of, of all the variables that get plotted and electronic. So this is a, this is do-it-yourself electronic engine management. Got okay. you. Okay. So so basically, what you're telling me is, fear not, electronics are totally walling people out. Yeah. From souping up their engines and building their own shit. Yeah, it's taking it to a whole new level. Well, that's uh, sick. Yeah, so I I thought of including this in my Substack about the taillight thing, ending with a, a sort of postscript about. So I'm in there, I'm bitching about the can pass this protocol mm-hmm. occasion and how complicated. I I say that even as I am myself building a can controlled electronic engine management system for my 76 Beetle because I want to add a bunch of boosts. I'm now at about 180 horsepower. I'm going to take it to about 300. Dude, I love that you're just turning this Beetle into Optimus Prime. Like, I, I use a very short video of a burnout to my sub stack and people saw it. That's, so yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, I have a chapter in in my book, why we drive called folk engineering, where I go into this a little bit, but you're also right though, that the stuff is daunting and there's a lot of inhibition against messing with your car because it's just so forbidding. Mm -hmm. Complexity. Shit. That's my neighbors. Do you hear that? I I do hear that a little bit. What are they doing? It's Javi. He's got a Fox body Mustang and he's got this step side pickup, both with just nasty motors. Uh, Dude, I'm leaving this in. <laughs> it's like too perfect. Um, Did you hear that? I do hear that. Yeah. Fuck you. It's so farty. <laughs> 
as the big cam. So, right. Yeah. So it's a double-edged thing. The, the electronics has, has opened up new possibilities and it's shifted the kind of activity into sort of tuning, which is, you know, something you do with a laptop, but because of, of these new possibilities, you, the mechanical stuff is very much still, I mean, it's, that just doesn't go away. This is just a layer added on top. So like if you go down the YouTube rabbit hole of today's hot rodding, it is a rich, beautiful world. So check it out. Yeah, that's really cool and good to know, right? So I guess that in part answers my question that it's not, we're not dealing with firm, totally society-wide trade-offs, right? I think one of the things that your work has encouraged me to do is to take a look at these scenarios or the scenario of our highly developed world and ask, what are the values imbued in the world I see around me? And are there things that I think are like demonstrably deleterious to human subjectivity? Now, not everything is going to be that obvious, but certain things are. So when my wife and I moved out to Chicago, where I'm from, we moved from LA, where she's from, we had to drive through part of Southern Illinois to do that. And we stopped off in a gas station. And it was my first time ever seeing what is called convenience gambling. Yeah. And you've written about this in the world outside your head. Um, yeah. The what? The title is The World Beyond Your Head. Beyond Your Head. I'm sorry. This is like when I had, I interviewed Michael Lind once and I kept getting the title of his book wrong the whole time and he kept correcting me and I felt so terrible. But convenience gambling for people who don't know, I basically walked into a gas station to use the bathroom and there were maybe like five people who looked like they had been staring into their slot machine for like the 12th hour. And they were just like totally wired to the thing. It had, they had basically like mind melted with it. And I look at that and I say, that is, seems to be like an incredibly dark misuse of technological power. And you've sort of written about that at length. Well, just sort of acquaint the audience with your perspective on this and what responses are insufficient to this type of problem. Yeah. So my understanding of this is very heavily indebted to a book called Addiction by Design by Natasha Dow Schull. She's an anthropologist. And she spent a whole bunch of time in Las Vegas talking to machine gamblers. Gambling used to be primarily the green felt table games, like roulette, mm -hmm. jack, poker, and that stuff. Uh, and then he had slot machines. They usually be clustered in the, you know, near the ele elevators or something in the casinos. But then eventually machine gambling. So slot machines and video poker terminals took over and it's by far, that's where most of it comes from. The gaming industry, as it calls itself. And so 
the the people who design these machines are very well informed on sort of behaviorist conditioning methods for mm. conditioning people's habits. And their goal is to maximize time on device, which is the same phrase used by designers of social media, which is no coincidence because it's some of the now gambling industry and social media. There's something called the Stanford Persuasive Design Lab that a lot of these ideas come out of. So yeah, persuasive design is this kind of Orwellian name. I was about to say, that's, that's one of those, are we the baddies type moment. Yeah. <laughs> Working for that. The, the term of art used in the, the gambling industry is to get people to play to extinction, by which they mean when, until they have no more money left. And there's one of the more interesting bits here is that, you know, human beings are exquisitely sensitive to detecting patterns. And so you're standing there playing the slot machine and you say almost get a jackpot, you know, but that last reel ended one step above where, you know, where you would have gotten the jackpot. So you feel like you're getting closer and you're developing some arcane understanding the, the workings of the machine. And there's something called the frustration theory. Of, uh, the idea is that if you almost win, that makes you want to keep playing. Now there's all kinds of ways to manipulate people into the sense of growing mastery of the slot machine, which is. Well, so just to, sorry to interrupt you here, but I heard, so I mean, people know I've been sober for a while. I remember early in sobriety, listening to this woman that wrote this book, give an interview on NPR, maybe it was a TED talk or something like that while I was driving around North Florida. And I remember her saying, somebody's like, well, what's the near miss theory? And she was like, well, it's when, let's say you get two cherries and then a seven and people who get addicted to gambling are sort of pre-wired. They're people vulnerable to at least seeing that as a near miss rather than a loss, even though in reality, it's just as much of a loss as getting all different symbols in your slot lineup. And my first thought was, yeah, but that's because it's a near win. And I was like, I can never touch a slot machine in my entire life. Like I am so mechanically like predisposed to just get sucked into that. If that was my first thought, I was like, well, clearly this lady's wrong because they almost won. Well, right. So the main point here is that you can manipulate what signs come up because it isn't just uh, random number generators. You can tweak them and that's what's going on behind the scenes. So you think it's random, but it's not. It's contrived to give you that experience of, of mm -hmm. near. That's just one of many kind of techniques they have for this. I guess the larger point, I mean, you set us on this topic by asking if there are kind of inherently misanthropic uses of technology. This would be like the clearest example I could think of. Where it's not just an unintended consequence, but the whole point is to, you know, reach into people and just squeeze them. And to bleed them dry, to play them to extinction, right? Like that's the, when I think of Nick Land's phrase, will with playing you make it to level two? This is what I think of 
in its most horrifying reality. I mean, I really invite people to go check on local convenient gambling establishments and to be completely horrified. But the twinge I felt while in this gas station speaks to something that you also talk about, right? Is that I also felt bad for judging these people, right? Who am I to say? I don't know what their life is like. But that is the same sort of compassion that we warned about earlier. It is sort of the false democratic leveling of all values to the least common denominator that actually has authoritarian implications. And I think that's a difficult... I think I, you, once you see it, you can't stop seeing it, but it's this is an argument that people don't happen upon every day. So I'm wondering if you'd talk us through it a little bit. Right. So the libertarian response to machine gambling is to say, you know, people should be free to make their own choices. And what you want to not be is that paternalistic, um, you know, nanny state that that tries to protect people from themselves. And, you know, that's a stance that I'm fairly sympathetic to on many fronts. Mm -hmm. But when you have a technology of manipulation that is so powerful as this, you know, so just throw up your hands that way and say, uh, you know, the, the state shouldn't try to intervene here. Well, what you're going to end up with is some sizable part of the population are zombified and utterly destitute, um, right? So it's not an adequate response, I think. And I think you have to have some robust and concrete picture of what a, a good life looks like so that you can articulate how these zombies who are parked in front of these machines for 12 hours at a stretch have fallen short of that. And that makes us uncomfortable because any substantive picture of the good life is going to be a controversial one. And we think that to be a good liberal or a good libertarian is to refrain from offering any such substantive picture that we should be agnostic on the question of what a good life is. But it's precisely in the vacuum that's left by that sort principled squeamishness about not, you know, not being judgmental is into that vacuum that rushes, you know, capital to get its profit where it can. And another further thing to know about machine gambling is that the ownership of casinos used to be, used to lie with the mob, but passed to basically Wall Street investors in the 90s with the passage of this Nevada's new gaming law. Uh, so you have a kind of, ex, you know, the whole logic of maximizing the, the returns and in, increasing the scope of this industry. So, you know, state after state has legalized it. But now we have sports betting, which is a whole new thing. It's oh, dude, that terrifies me. I see the ads of the guy sitting on his phone while taking a dump. And he's like switching his parlays up while texting with a friend. And I'm like, this is so bleak. 
I mean, I like it's basically that's an ad, like it, that's an ad that is only slightly gam glamorizing what a gambling addiction looks like, where you're like in the bathroom at a family party, like switching up your bets rather than doing what you're supposed to be doing because you're getting killed out there. And it's almost like making the ad for liquor, like the dude who wakes up in his own vomit and then army crawls to the bathroom where he chugs down Listerine just so he can stand up. Like it is only like one step removed from romanticizing that. Yeah. I mean, we could, you could some of these same considerations probably apply to porn, right? And the ubiquity of it. Yes. It's just right there in your pocket if you want it. On sort of strict libertarian grounds, you probably can't say what might be bad about that because, I mean, there's a very naive anthropology that seems to underwrite libertarianism, namely that we're sort of utility maximizers who can have a sort of perfectly lucid grasp of where our interests lie and act accordingly. We have some what do they call it? A utility preference schedule or something, mm -hmm. you know, what your preferences are, that's not really available for rational scrutiny. They just are what they are. You mm -hmm. go about maximizing your utility, but it turns out your preferences themselves can be uh, manipulated simply through exposure and repetition. That's how an addiction sets in. Having you know, a more realistic view of the human person as being formed by their environment and formed by the habits that they, you know, that their own practices. And while acknowledging that these practices are, you know, the subject of billion dollar, you know, scientifically informed efforts at sort of social management and control. Not necessarily by the state. I mean, libertarians only worry about the state, but there's all kinds of social engineering for profit that happens through these, you know, corporations that have very sort of quasi-governmental role in our life. I mean, the, the platform firms would be the first case of that. Or, yeah, I think that's the. You know, it used to be that there were capital P progressives on both sides of the aisle that had overlapping, if somewhat different, fears about corporate power, right? So historically, one of the ways you see that is the response of the Midwest, which was largely yeoman farmers who built a robust civic life around their homesteads and around their communities. It was like one of the most literate places in the world, et cetera, et cetera. Their response to the large vertically integrated industrial firms like trains, for example, is sort of what this comes out of and sort of the early pop populist movement out of the prairie. And then you have people like Theodore Roosevelt, who who's worried about monopoly or whatever, you have FDR with the New Deal. All, all I mean to say is that I think that there were a constellation of political fears around corporate power that seems somehow diminished or something now. It seems like harder to make that case. And just to put some a little bit of respect on libertarian's name, I think that 
there are more robust iterations of libertarianism that aren't premised on utilitarianism, but have something else in mind. I'm not super familiar with the full suite of that ideology, but based on people that I know that there are some that share the concerns that you and I have about corporate power and specifically corporate power when it overlaps with this sort of software technology that is meant to suck you in. But I want to go back to a phrase you used earlier when you talked about our sort of uh, lowercase l, liberal agnosticism around the good life. Where does that come from and why does it appear to be so entrenched now? I think you could locate the origins of that variously with sort of competing genealogies that probably overlap. One moment you might point to, probably the most proximate historically, would be after World War II and the experience of totalitarianisms of the left and right and the disgust with, you know, the presumptuousness of those who think they know what's best and want to impose it on people. Liberalism, I think after the war, was very much committed to value agnosticism or value neutrality. And since those totalitarianisms were projects of the state, I think that liberal value neutrality lined up well with this kind of new sort of free market mentality that conceived the state as the, the threat to human freedom. Uh, of course, you know, <laughs> we've gotten to the point where corporations have, I mean, the, the concentrations of wealth are so extreme that these have government-like powers. Mm -hmm. So the distinction between state and corporation has gotten not to blurry. You could also go back further and say that value agnosticism is kind of the original point of early liberalism. So Hobbes, Locke, and those guys. So there, the, the thing that we're trying to get away from is not 20th century totalitarian movements, but the presumption of, you know, the church and, and kings and priests to know what the good life is. And so it's a very polemical project to liberate from authority. And, and so every man should be his own authority. Um, now Tocqueville sees that Americans are especially prone to this way of thinking that they think, you know, every man should judge everything for himself, which sounds great. The problem is that of course, we're not competent to judge things for ourselves for the most mm -hmm. part. So person in this position where they feel they can't have any recourse to tradition or inherited forms of authority ends up feeling anxious and sort of isolated. And what do they do then? Well, they look around to see what everyone else thinks. So his point is that this anti-authoritarian or you know, anti-tradition uh, mindset, the rugged individualist actually tends toward conformity because public opinion 
takes on this outside significance for the, the individualist. Because it, it's really the only touchstone he has to know, you know, to get his bearings by. You can't refer to, you know. We can't appeal to, it becomes difficult to appeal to higher law. Yeah. Is I think something that we're talking about here, right? Is is that the structure of the good life and who has authority to claim both knowledge and then perhaps practice of that life is cast into deep ambiguity. And it is incredibly onerous for people to style themselves competently, let alone correctly. And I don't want this to sound like I'm saying I have this, you know, esoteric knowledge of the good life. But what I am communicating is something that I think I struggle with and anybody who is dealing with contemporary society struggles with is that it is hard to find anchor points. It is hard, it feels, to find a sort of moral authority that extends in the final hour beyond mere preference. Yeah. And one thing to notice about that when you're trapped in an eternal present without the ability to appeal to something timeless and authoritative is that it makes everyone more open to manipulation because mm. it's sort of the product of, you know, propaganda and an operation of, you know, a lot of you know, manipulative energies, wherever they may be coming from. So. So one, you know, so yeah, having an authoritative, well, an authority that stands outside the present is really important. And so that can take the form of tradition or mm -hmm. the church, but it can also take the form of nature. Nature has always had this radical uh, possibility. And so, you know, for the Greeks who discovered the concept of nature, for them, it's it was the opposite of convention. The mm -hmm. convention realm of, you know, laws and norms and all that. And any given, you know, any society is based on norms and conventions. And the idea of nature is inherently kind of dangerous and subversive because you can undercut those norms by saying they're merely convention. And here's you know, what's natural. And in fact, nature has been invoked in just that way throughout history by sort of revolutionary projects. Or, you know, for example, feminism says, you know, this rule by men is not according to nature. That's just a mere convention by mm -hmm. nature or equal, things like that. Of course, now the perversity is that we want to discard the concept of nature altogether in the, in the gender stuff I'm thinking of. You know, mm -hmm. that sexual difference is a mere social construct. And so this is supposed to be liberatory, right? We're liberated from this thing we thought was this kind of hard constraint that's inescapable. 
Well, now we're seeing going to throw that off as mere social construction. And, but again, this opens the way to a kind of manipulation. And if you, anyone, talk to anyone who has a daughter in middle school age, and you will learn that the, the least that she's in like a blue city, the majority of her classmates identify as something other than simply a girl. I mean, it's mind-boggling, just the, the social contagion of this. And if you say to one of these creatures, he's, you know, 14-year-old girl, well, no, there actually is, you know, mm-hmm. there's a actual differentiation as it goes all the way into your chromosomes. It's every cell in your body is a very threatening idea. But it's, a, but I think it's precisely a, a great idea because it can help liberate a kid from this huge tidal wave of social pressure toward being non-binary and, and all that. You know, that they yeah. have ground to stand on to resist this unless you have the idea of nature. Well, that's what I think is so profound here about this. So you and I have, I think, uh, many overlapping interests, but I think maybe it was earlier this year or last year. Just bear with me here because this is all going to connect. Somebody published this study that was like, if we had nuclear energy instead of, I don't know, it was coal or natural gas or whatever, we would save X many lives per year because we wouldn't have the consequences of pollution. And I saw everybody and their mother sharing this and being like, this is why we need nuclear. And I was like, I hate this argument because that argument is safetyism. And I wrote a piece called The Problem with Counting Bodies. And what it does is it reduces the idea of human life to bare life, to survival on its own. So anything that, you know, allegedly extends or saves life is good. But the reason I don't like that is like, A, it limits the horizon of what we see a human life is for. And because I don't like these arguments that are like, you know, if you listen to detransitioners, we'll put it in this example. Some of them talk about these medical professionals telling their parents, you can either have a dead daughter or a living trans son. And their parents are like, okay, I got to sign my kid up for this, right? And that's when it becomes highly manipulative because what happens is it creates a level of expertise over life and death that is meant to rob people of their own ability to decide or to operate under the premises of received tradition because it elevates the stakes of any choice to life or death out of the person's control or within the system of their own values. Yeah. I mean, not to mention the fact that the, the, it seems to be based on lies, the, the, the suicide stuff. The Oh yeah. There's just not enough data for that. People can check out Jesse Singles' work on that. Like there's, you know, and he's a good liberal too. So like, you can feel it's, safe. I mean, know, as far as like the, the remedy to, you know, mental illness that's going to be provided by the transitioning. I mean, I'm not an expert. I'm just 
waving my hands in that direction. No, yeah, there's a coming wave of lawsuits. Actually, one just started two days ago as of time of recording. This mm-hmm. is on December 7th that hauls in some of these people. So let's, you know, I think we can move off this hot topic a little bit yeah. and sort of talk about what I see are the political consequences of this, because I see this in the environmental movement all the time where they're like, the end of the world is coming. If you don't do what we say, we're all going to die. And you're never going to get rid of political extremism. Political faction is a permanent part of society. But I am worried about this pervasive culture of fear and emergency that seems to arrogate more and more authority to the unelected and the unaccountable. That's really the dynamic, I think, of the present is government by emergency. So, and what that permits is relocating sovereignty from representative bodies to you know, some kind of clerisy that is uniquely in possession of the knowledge we need to get through the emergency. So you have to suspend all the normals or constitutional principles. And so it's just, there's a, I'm sure you know this Italian theorist, Agamben, who, who talks about this, mm-hmm. the state of exception, you know, when you declare the normal rules don't apply, as a essentially become the rule rather than the exception over, he says, I've looked at the last hundred years, but with, you know, COVID and climate, it's now like these things are right in your face. And it's always the, the rationale that, um, supports, uh, a concentration of power. So, and, you know, another would be the moral emergency of white supremacism or Mm-hmm. or something, these moral panics big, or a variation on the theme of politics, emergency. Yeah. Yeah. So I, we, the whole... the, I, I just mean to say that's sort of what we see with this rash of censoriousness hitting the wire seemingly everywhere is that the psychic domain of the individual needs to be kept safe from the harm of antagonistic viewpoints. And that is premised on sort of this, it's like the linear no threshold theory of exposure to ideas. So if you're not familiar, linear no threshold is the standard by which we judge radiation exposure. And it is basically a bullshit science that a regulator uses that argues that any amount of exposure to radiation is potentially fatal. So disregarding any of the body's capabilities to repair, I think we have like a linear no threshold for speech now. And that freaks me out. Yeah. So this would be to shift gears a little bit. Please. Those are lay people who I like, I haven't checked in for some decades. Now. What is the nuclear <laughs> power? And is it the, is like the safety issues kind of been, uh, sort of adequately addressed and the waste disposal, where do things stand? Just give us a, a quick update. If you don't oh yeah. I'm, okay. Yeah. Oh, now I'm being interviewed. All right. So this is going to sound controversial at first, right? It was 
never as dangerous as combustion, ever. The worst accident that has ever happened was still Chernobyl, and about 52 people died on site. And that was a sort of bespoke, mismanaged Soviet design that didn't have a containment dome over the reactor course. So that's where the reactors are doing fission. So when they sort of, you know, melted down, all of that stuff exited the premises. Reactors. Ex excess deaths over the decades since that, you know, st statistically it could be attributable. Like what, are, what kind of numbers are we looking at then in Chernobyl? Like basically none. The person who is the, runs the tissue bank, Geraldine Thomas, the four people exposed to Chernobyl, has basically said that, you know, the biggest threat was thyroid cancer and that's the most treatable thing in the world. And that the, what appears like excess deaths from the people in that area surviving Chernobyl are actually more reflective of the deprivation experienced in living in the conditions of Soviet society. So lower access to food, like all of these other things. And that if you extend someone's lifetime out long enough from an event like that, it becomes almost impossible to point to one specific incident as the cause for their death. So the excess deaths are basically overblown. Like we have to understand when people have those graphs of like the radiation moving over Europe, it's, do you remember that image after Fukushima that ended up everywhere where they were like, oh, see, this is the plume of radiation moving out into the water. Do you remember that at all? And it's like oh, being okay. carried by the sea. So, and it, it looks like a heat map. Well, it turns out that map is not even of radiation. It is like basically a map of water flows put together by NOAA, the North American ocean, oceanographers, whatever that is. So there's been a lot of misinformation around this. And Chernobyl was essentially tragic, but not that bad, if I can put it a little callously. No one died from exposure to radiation at Fukushima. In fact, per kilowatt hour generated, people don't like this statistic, but if we're just going to say like, what's the most dangerous, I think nuclear is the second safest power resource in the history of the world. Sure. What? Hydro. No, after I think it's solar or wind. So in the fallout area with Chernobyl, is it still uninhabited and uninhabitable or because of some well, you know, exposure would be different than that acute? No, it's, it's so it's not uninhabitable. I mean, its levels are basically equal to background radiation. Just I mean, you're probably more exposed living in a mountain town in Colorado just because you're closer to the sun or when I lived in Santa Fe. I lived down, I worked down the street from the most radioactive spot in America, which is a skate park that is built on a slab of granite that has uranium shot through with it. I'm that is, a, I'm thinking brand here, like Bones Brigade. Yeah, exactly. So I, I would say that like now Chernobyl is basically a national park and like a nature preserve, right? So it's very scenic. Um, I think people go there to be like, you know, you'll see like influencers or TikTok people be like, I'm in Chernobyl. 
you know, that's really just to get clicks and trade on older fears. The ground itself is like very, it's actually quite beautiful. And again, is now home to all of this wildlife that has an undisturbed place to stay now. Sorry to sidetrack you, but I was curious. No, that's fine. I mean, I think it's it's good to to ask that question. Yeah, I, it's it's very overblown. One of the most annoying, I think, post Chernobyl fears that was propagated by the environmental movement was this idea. This was during the AIDS crisis. They called it Chernobyl AIDS, and it was basically this pseudoscience around people having their immune systems lowered, just like in AIDS, because of exposure to radiation. But that's not. I mean, that's just not real. And they were essentially trading on very cynically the deaths of gay men to do that. Um, And Rod Adams recovered a document from a conference that features people like Ralph Nader and Amory Lovins, among others, signing on to that talking point as part of the campaign that they were going to prosecute against nuclear energy in the early 90s. It's like profoundly bleak and cynical. Like if we yeah. want to talk about like <laughs> taking advantage of people's fears and safetyism and like w- 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 what the consequences of that are, that's one of them. That's part of why I'm so against that way of thinking. I think COVID really woke people up about the, the, the corruptibility of science given mm-hmm. sort of political pressures for it to, you know, pronounce things that are convenient to this, you know, entity or another. And AIDS was another episode, which, you know, I think there's now some historical work going back and looking at what happened with AIDS and the willingness of scientific bodies to, you know, play their part in a, basically a kind of political cartel. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think that's. And I think, I don't know if you've seen it, but Bethany McLean, who wrote The Smartest Guys in the Room, the book about Enron, she wrote the piece, is Enron overvalued, which sort of uh, signaled the coming downfall of that company. With the same co-author, she wrote Smartest Guys in the Room. She's just published a book on lockdowns and how they were basically premised on nothing um, and highly injurious. And I think it is heartening to see somebody that respected and that respected within the liberal establishment of journalists uh, doing their due diligence on that. Um, Better late than never. Hey, better late than never. I mean, you know, as somebody who covers this stuff for a living now, not COVID stuff, but energy stuff, you know, when things go wrong, I think Jocko Willink always says the first report is usually wrong. And I try to see that even for things that conform to my suspicions. You know, sometimes the owl, <laughs> the sun needs to set before the owl of Minerva can fly. But yeah, you know, I think th- this is a real problem. So just close out on this sort of circuitous route we've taken around our relationship to technology and power. As, as a gearhead, what in the domain of technology gives you? the most hope or just interests you the most, whether or not it gets well, you I hope. mean, one is just perfectly obvious, I think, and that is the, you know, YouTube and mm-hmm. dissemination of technical know-how 
So, you know, if your appliance goes on the fritz, which happens all the time, they've gotten so kind of fragile with all the complexity. The first thing you do, go on YouTube and somebody has, has, has figured it out and will show you how to fix it. So that's amazing. That, uh, dissemination of, of knowledge and it's closely connected to what I was talking about earlier with the second golden age of hot rodding that we're living in. So it's partly yeah, a I, very specialized technical forums you know, devoted to some particular mm, kind of car. Sorry, you were about to say? No, yeah. I So I, my wife and I talk about this all the time, about YouTube as a pedagogical resource and how it gives us great hope. I mean, also as an archive, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's, I have a friend who half of our text conversations are us sending each other like recently unearthed VHS rips of like Soundgarden recordings from 1989 at a record store. You know, like it is amazing how much is out there that is worth your time if you're willing to look for it. And then even including like archival footage of deceased intellectuals that hasn't been unearthed before, things like that. It is amazing what can be unlocked for you there. So I heartily agree. I also agree about the technical forums, though my group chats around nuclear and energy aren't necessarily those forums. They have the similar vibe and you can get upskilled so quickly that I think it gives me greater hope for living in a world that threatens to overwhelm the average person with its complexity. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. So on that pleasant note, we will end it. Thank you, Matt, for joining me. This was a great time. Yeah. Thank you, Emmett. And remember, everybody, stay sharp, stay strong, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.